0: Section four of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Turtle. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book one, chapter eleven. Containing many rules and some examples concerning falling in love descriptions of beauty, and other more prudential inducements to matrimony. It hath been observed, by wise men or women, I forget which, that all persons are doomed to be in love once in their lives. No particular season is, as I remember, assigned for this, but the age at which Miss Bridget was arrived seemed to me as proper a period as any to be fixed on for this purpose. It often, indeed, happens much earlier, but when it doth not, I have observed it seldom or never fails about this time. Moreover, we may remark that at this season love is of a more serious and steady nature than what sometimes shows itself in the younger parts of life. The love of girls is uncertain, capricious, and so foolish that we cannot always discover what the young lady would be at. Nay, it may almost be doubted whether she always knows this herself. Now, we are never at a loss to discern this in women about forty— For as such grave, serious, and experienced ladies well know their own meaning, so it is always very easy for a man of the least sagacity to discover it with the utmost certainty. Miss Bridget is an example of all these observations. She had not been many times in the captain's company before she was seized with this passion. Nor did she go pining and moping about the house like a puny, foolish girl, ignorant of her distemper. She felt, she knew, and she enjoyed the pleasing sensation, of which, as she was certain it was not only innocent but laudable, she was neither afraid nor ashamed. And to say the truth, there is, in all points, great difference between the reasonable passion which men at this age conceive towards men, and the idle and childish liking of a girl to a boy, which is often fixed on the outside only, and on things of little value and no duration, as on cherry cheeks— small lily-white hands, slow black eyes, flowing locks, downy chins, dapper shapes, nay, sometimes on charms more worthless than these, and less the party's own, such are the outward ornaments of the person, for which men are beholden to the tailor, the laceman, the periwig-maker, the hatter and the milliner, and not to nature. Such a passion girls may well be ashamed, as they generally are, to own either to themselves or others.' The love of Miss Bridget was of another kind. The captain owed nothing to any of these fop-makers in his dress, nor was his person much more beholden to nature. Both his dress and person were such as, had they appeared in an assembly or a drawing-room, would have been the contempt and ridicule of all the fine ladies there. The former of these was indeed neat, but plain, coarse, ill-fancied, and out of fashion. As for the latter, we have expressly described it above, So far was the skin of his cheeks from being cherry-coloured that you could not discern what the natural colour of his cheeks was, they being totally overgrown by a black beard which ascended to his eyes. His shape and limbs were indeed exactly proportioned, but so large that they denoted the strength rather of a ploughman than any other. His shoulders were broad beyond all size, and the calves of his legs larger than those of a common chairman. In short, his whole person wanted all that elegance and beauty which is the very reverse of clumsy strength, and which so agreeably sets off most of our fine gentlemen, being partly owing to the high blood of their ancestors, viz. blood made of rich sauces and generous wines, and partly to an early town education. Though Miss Bridget was a woman of the greatest delicacy of taste, yet such were the charms of the captain's conversation that she totally overlooked the defects of his person she imagined, and perhaps very wisely, that she should enjoy more agreeable minutes with the captain than with a much prettier fellow, and for the consideration of pleasing her eyes, in order to procure herself much more solid satisfaction. The captain no sooner perceived the passion of Miss Bridget, in which discovery he was very quick-sighted, than he faithfully returned it. The lady, no more than her lover, was remarkable for beauty. I would attempt to draw her picture. But that is done already by a more able master, Mr. Hogarth himself, to whom she sat many years ago, and hath been lately exhibited by that gentleman in his print of A Winter's Morning, of which she was no improper emblem, and may be seen walking, for walk she doth in the print, to Covent Garden Church, with a starved footboy behind, carrying her prayer-book. The captain likewise very wisely preferred the more solid enjoyments he expected with this lady, to the fleeting charms of person. He was one of those wise men who regard beauty in the other sex as a very worthless and superficial qualification, or, to speak more truly, who rather choose to possess every convenience of life with an ugly woman than a handsome one without any of those conveniences. And, having a very good appetite, but little nicety, he fancied he should play his part very well at the matrimonial banquet without the source of beauty. To deal plainly with the reader, the captain, ever since his arrival, at least from the moment his brother had proposed the match to him, long before he had discovered any flattering symptoms in Miss Bridget, had been greatly enamoured, that is to say, of Mr. Alworthy's house and gardens, and of his lands, tenements, and hereditaments, of all which the captain was so passionately fond that he would most probably have contracted marriage with them had he been obliged to have taken the witch of Endor into the bargain. As Mr. Allworthy, therefore, had declared to the doctor that he never intended to take a second wife, as his sister was his nearest relation, and as the doctor had fished out of his intentions were to make any child of hers his heir, which indeed the law, without his interposition, would have done for him, the doctor and his brother thought it an act of benevolence to give being to a human creature who would be so plentifully provided with the most essential means of happiness. The whole thoughts, therefore, of both the brothers— how to engage the affections of this amiable lady. But Fortune, who is a tender parent, and often doth more for her favourite offspring than either they deserve or wish, had been so industrious for the captain, that whilst he was laying schemes to execute his purpose, the lady conceived the same desires with himself, and was on her side contriving how to give the captain proper encouragement, without appearing too forward, for she was a strict observer of all rules of decorum. In this, however, she easily succeeded, for as the captain was always on the lookout, no glance, gesture, or word escaped him. The satisfaction which the captain received from the kind behaviour of Miss Bridget was not a little abated by his apprehensions of Mr. Allworthy, for, notwithstanding his disinterested professions, the captain imagined he would, when he came to act, follow the example of the rest of the world, and refuse his consent to a match so disadvantageous in point of interest to his sister. From what oracle he received this opinion, I shall leave the reader to determine, but however he came by it, it strangely perplexed him how to regulate his conduct so as at once to convey his affection to the lady, and to conceal it from her brother. He at length resolved to take all private opportunities of making his addresses, but in the presence of Mr. Allworthy, to be as reserved and as much upon his guard as was possible, and this conduct was highly approved by the brother.' He soon found means to make his addresses, in express terms, to his mistress, from whom he received an answer in the proper form, viz., the answer which was first made some thousands of years ago, and which hath been handed down by tradition from mother to daughter ever since. If I was to translate this into Latin, I should render it by these two words, NOLO EPISCOPARI, a phrase likewise of immemorial use on another occasion. The captain, however he came by his knowledge, perfectly well understood the lady, and very soon after repeated his application with more warmth and earnestness than before, and was again, according to due form, rejected. But as he had increased in the eagerness of his desires, so the lady, with the same propriety, decreased in the violence of her refusal. Not to tire the reader by leading him through every scene of this courtship, which, though in the opinion of a certain great author it is the pleasantest scene of life to the actor, is perhaps as dull and tiresome as any whatever to the audience, the captain made his advances in form, the citadel was defended in form, and at length, in proper form, surrendered at discretion. During this whole time, which filled the space of near a month, the captain preserved great distance of behaviour to his lady in the presence of the brother, and the more he succeeded with her in private, the more reserved was he in public, and as for the lady, she had no sooner secured her lover than she behaved to him before company with the highest degree of indifference, so that Mr. Allworthy must have had the insight of the devil, or perhaps some of his worst qualities, to have entertained the least suspicion of what was going forward. CHAPTER Twelve, CONTAINING WHAT THE READER MAY, PERHAPS, EXPECT TO FIND IN IT. In all bargains, whether to fight or to marry, or concerning any other such business, Little previous ceremony is required to bring the matter to an issue when both parties are really in earnest. This was the case at present, and in less than a month the captain and his lady were man and wife. The great concern, now, was how to break the matter to Mr. Allworthy, and this was undertaken by the doctor. One day, then, as Allworthy was walking in his garden, the doctor came to him, and with great gravity of aspect and all the concern, "'which he could possibly affect in his countenance, said, "'I am come, sir, to impart an affair to you of the utmost consequence. "'But how shall I mention to you what it almost distracts me to think of?' "'He then launched forth into the most bitter invectives, "'both against men and women, "'accusing the former of having no attachment but to their interest, "'and the latter of being so addicted to vicious inclinations "'that they could never be safely trusted with one of the other sex. "'Could I?' said he. "'Sir, have suspected that a lady of such prudence, such judgment, such learning, "'should indulge so indiscreet a passion? "'Or could I have imagined that my brother—why do I call him so? "'He is no longer a brother of mine.' "'Indeed, but he is,' said Allworthy, "'and a brother of mine, too.' "'Bless me, sir,' said the doctor. "'Do you know the shocking affair?' ye, Mr. Bliffle!' "'answered the good man. "'It hath been my constant maxim in life "'to make the best of all matters which happen. "'My sister, though many years younger than I, "'is at least old enough to be at the age of discretion. "'Had he imposed on a child, "'I should have been more averse to have forgiven him. "'But a woman upwards of thirty "'must certainly be supposed to know "'what will make her most happy. "'She hath married a gentleman, "'though perhaps not quite her equal in fortune, "'and if he hath any perfections in her eye "'which can make up that deficiency,' "'I see no reason why I should object to her choice of her own happiness, "'which I, no more than herself, imagine to consist only in immense wealth. "'I might, perhaps, from the many declarations I have made "'of complying with almost any proposal, "'have expected to have been consulted on this occasion. "'But these matters are of a very delicate nature, "'and the scruples of modesty, perhaps, are not to be overcome. "'As to your brother, I have really no anger against him at all. "'He hath no obligations to me.' Nor do I think he was under any necessity of asking my consent, since the woman is, as I have said, sui juris, and of a proper age to be entirely answerable only to herself for her conduct. The doctor accused Mr. Allworthy of too great lenity, repeated his accusations against his brother, and declared that he should never more be brought either to see or to own him for his relation. He then launched forth into a panegyric on Allworthy's goodness— into the highest encomiums on his friendship, and concluded by saying he should never forgive his brother for having put the place which he bore in that friendship to a hazard. Allworthy thus answered, Had I conceived any displeasure against your brother, I should never have carried that resentment to the innocent. But I assure you, I have no such displeasure. Your brother appears to me to be a man of sense and honour. I do not disapprove the taste of my sister, nor will I doubt but that she is equally the object of his inclinations. I have always thought love the only foundation of happiness in a married state, as it can only produce that high and tender friendship which should always be the cement of this union. And, in my opinion, all those marriages which are contracted from other motives are greatly criminal. They are a profanation of a most holy ceremony, and generally end in disquiet and misery. For surely we may call it a profanation to convert this most sacred institution into a wicked sacrifice to lust or avarice. And what better can be said of those matches to which men are induced merely by the consideration of a beautiful person, or a great fortune? To deny that beauty is an agreeable object to the eye, and even worthy some admiration, would be false and foolish. Beautiful is an epithet often used in Scripture, and always mentioned with honour. It was my own fortune to marry a woman whom the world thought handsome, and I can truly say I liked the better on that account. But to make this the sole consideration of marriage— To lust after it so violently as to overlook all imperfections for its sake, or to require it so absolutely as to reject and disdain religion, virtue, and sense, which are qualities in their nature of much higher perfection, only because an elegance of person is wanting. This is surely inconsistent, either with a wise man or a good Christian. And it is perhaps being too charitable to conclude that such persons mean anything more by their marriage than to please their carnal appetites, for the satisfaction of which we are taught— It was not ordained. In the next place, with respect to fortune. Worldly prudence, perhaps, exacts some consideration on this head. Nor will I absolutely and altogether condemn it. As the world is constituted, the demands of a married state and the care of posterity require some little regard to what we call circumstances. Yet this provision is greatly increased, beyond what is really necessary, by folly and vanity, which create abundantly more wants than nature— Equipage for the wife and large fortunes for the children are by custom enrolled in the list of necessaries, and to procure these everything truly solid and sweet and virtuous and religious are neglected and overlooked. And this in many degrees, the last and greatest of which seems scarce distinguishable from madness, I mean where persons of immense fortunes contract themselves to those who are and must be disagreeable to them to fools and knaves, in order to increase an estate already larger than even the demands of their pleasures. Surely such persons, if they will not be thought mad, must own either that they are incapable of tasting the sweets of the tenderest friendship, or that they sacrifice the greatest happiness of which they are capable to the vain, uncertain, and senseless laws of vulgar opinion, which owe as well their force as their foundation to folly. Here Allworthy concluded his sermon to which Bliffle had listened with the profoundest attention, though it cost him some pains to prevent now and then a small discomposure of his muscles. He now praised every period of what he had heard, with the warmth of a young divine, who hath the honour to dine with a bishop, the same day in which his lordship hath mounted the pulpit. CHAPTER Thirteen, WHICH CONCLUDES THE FIRST BOOK, WITH AN INSTANCE OF INGRATITUDE, WHICH WE HOPE WILL APPEAR UNNATURAL. The reader, from what hath been said, may imagine that the reconciliation, if indeed it could so be called, was only matter of form. We shall therefore pass it over, and hasten to what must surely be thought matter of substance. The doctor had acquainted his brother with what had passed between Mr. Allworthy and him, and added with a smile, I promise you I paid you off. Nay, I absolutely desire the good gentleman not to forgive you. you know, after he had made a declaration in your favour, I might with safety venture on such a request with a person of his temper, and I was willing, as well as for your sake as for my own, to prevent the least possibility of a suspicion. Captain Bliffle took not the least notice of this at that time, but he afterwards made a very notable use of it. One of the maxims which the devil, in a late visit upon earth, left to his disciples is, when once you are got up, to kick the stool from under you. In plain English, when you have made your fortune by the good offices of a friend, you are advised to discard him as soon as you can. Whether the captain acted by this maxim, I will not positively determine. So far as we may confidently say that his actions may be fairly derived from this diabolical principle, and, indeed, it is difficult to assign any other motive to them, for no sooner was he possessed of Miss Bridget and reconciled to Allworthy than he began to show a coldness to his brother, which increased daily.' till at length it grew into rudeness and became very visible to everyone. The doctor remonstrated to him privately concerning this behaviour, but could obtain no other satisfaction than the following plain declaration. "'If you dislike anything in my brother's house, sir, you know you are at liberty to quit it.' This strange, cruel, and almost unaccountable ingratitude in the captain absolutely broke the poor doctor's heart, for ingratitude never so thoroughly pierces the human breast, as when it proceeds from those in whose behalf we have been guilty of transgressions. Reflections on great and good actions, however they are received or returned by those in whose favour they are performed, always administer some comfort to us. But what consolation shall we receive under so biting a calamity as the ungrateful behaviour of our friend, when our wounded conscience at the same time flies in our face, and upbraids us with having spotted it in the service of one so worthless? Mr. Allworthy himself spoke to the captain in his brother's behalf, and desired to know what offence the doctor had committed, when the hard-hearted villain had the baseness to say that he should never forgive him for the injury which he had endeavoured to do him in his favour, which, he said, he had pumped out of him, and was such a cruelty that it ought not to be forgiven. Allworthy spoke in very high terms upon this declaration, which, he said, became not a human creature. He expressed, indeed, so much resentment against an unforgiving temper, that the captain at last pretended to be convinced by his arguments, and outwardly professed to be reconciled. As for the bride, she was now in her honeymoon, and so passionately fond of her new husband, that he never appeared to her to be in the wrong, and his displeasure against any person was a sufficient reason for her dislike to the same. The captain, at Mr. Allworthy's instance, was outwardly, as we have said, reconciled to his brother, yet the same rancour remained in his heart, and he found so many opportunities of giving him private hints of this, that the house at last grew insupportable to the poor doctor, and he chose rather to submit to any inconveniences which he might encounter in the world, than longer to bear those cruel and ungrateful insults from a brother for whom he had done so much. He once intended to acquaint Allworthy with the whole, but he could not bring himself to submit to the confession, by which he must take to his share so great a portion of guilt. Besides, by how much the worse man he represented his brother to be, so much the greater would his own offence appear to Allworthy, and so much the greater, he had reason to imagine, would be his resentment. He feigned, therefore, some excuse of business for his departure, and promised to return soon again, and took leave of his brother with so well-dissembled content, that, as the captain played his parts to the same perfection, Allworthy remained well satisfied with the truth of the reconciliation. The doctor went directly to London, where he died soon after of a broken heart, a distemper which kills many more than is generally imagined, and would have a fair title to a place in the bill of mortality did it not differ in one instance from all other diseases, viz. that no physician can cure it. Now, upon the most diligent inquiry into the former lives of these two brothers, I find, besides the cursed and hellish maxim of policy above mentioned, another reason for the captain's conduct. The captain, besides what we have before said of him, was a man of great pride and fierceness, and had always treated his brother, who was of a different complexion, and greatly deficient in both these qualities, with the utmost air of superiority. The doctor, however, had much the larger share of learning, and was by many reputed to have the better understanding. This the captain knew, and could not bear, for though envy is at best a very malignant passion, yet is its bitterness greatly heightened by mixing with contempt towards the same object, and very much afraid I am that whenever an obligation is joined to these two, indignation and not gratitude will be the product of all three. End of Book One and Section Four